the best way to become a millionaire uh, is to start off as a billionaire and invest in film and wine, right? Like if you do that, then you can you can quickly become the millionaire that you always wanted to be. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So my little sister, who works in musical theater follows me on Twitter and occasionally urges me to tweet more about musical theater. I never tweet about musical theater. I tweet about politics and venture capital. I don't even like musical theater, though I've sat through a lot of musicals because I do like my sister. So believe it or not, Rebecca, this podcast episode includes musical theater. Words fall through me and an amazing set of set of songs. Yeah, it was such a wonderful project. This week on Sand Hill Road, Amy Noyakis, partner at venture firm Anthemis, investor in fintech, and a driving force behind musicals like Once, winner of eight Tonys. What's the appeal of musical theater? Sell me on musical theater. Oh, it's a tough one. Um, for me personally, it was just uh, wanting to get in touch with a more creative part of my mind and my being, um, having spent the majority of my life uh, on Wall Street and in financial services and in kind of, you know, capitalist pursuit. Um, and and it was just uh, uh, something that I think I probably started in earnest off the side of my desk because I thought it would be fun. I thought it would be something that, that would, um, you know, teach me something that I didn't already know. Um, but what I didn't know is that I would enjoy it so much kind of, you know, being part of the, the development teams around creating these creative projects generally, um, you know, working with filmmakers and, and writers. Um, but I think it, it's sort of all part of a bigger, bigger journey that I've been on. Wall Street banker becomes involved in musical theater and movies sounds, you know, like a, a plot in which the Wall Street banker is the bad person, right? You know, I can picture, I can picture, right, I can picture your, uh, you, you know, you got the, the shoulder pads in your suit and the, and the briefcase and all of those things. And you come to Broadway and say, I'm here. I've always wanted to be in musical theater. Um, <laughs> how, what gave you the idea that you'd be any good at it? And how did you convince anyone else that you, you belonged in the theater? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, I think early on, um, it was not that I thought I'd be any good at it. It was just something that was interesting to me. It's interesting because 
it, it was something I didn't understand. Um, certainly not a, a, a community of people that I was very um, uh, well aligned or, or connected to. Um, and I think if I, if I were, were honest, it was just more of a, I want to say, a, you know, started as a hobby, which is a, well, is this something fun that, that, you know, I've always loved to go to musicals. I love to go to, to, I love to see films. I love to watch television. Let's see if I can't, you know, figure this thing out. Um, and, you know, completely happenstance wise, I was, um, introduced to a team of folks that were working on the once project, which is what started my journey, um, as a producer. Um, it was never intended that I was going to go, you know, exclusively into musical theater or, or, or be a full, you know, build my own production company. It was really just supposed to, you know, how I was going to get started. And, and I think I used as, as you do your skills that you have, um, you know, to kind of complement the team. Um, they were looking for someone who understood the business side of things, who understood how to capital raise. And it was skills that I had and a network that I could bring. Um, and so I used it as kind of like a, you know, a, a high-end internship to some degree. Um, learned a little bit about the business, learned about, um, you know, how teams are created, um, learned about who I wanted to work with and who I didn't want to work with, and then found my way um, to, to sort of having the confidence to start Archer Gray. And, and I think, you know, as I look back on it now, when I think about everything that, that I've ever been motivated to do, it's really about trying to do things differently. And, and in, in many cases, trying to help change happen. And, and I think, you know, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that, you know, collecting a platform now that involves a massive amount of capital and influence in private equity and venture with uh, a platform that is building importance in um, influence around voice uh, and and trends um, is a really good way to make change happen. Um, so I guess I, I look at it now as all just sort of steps on the journey to building what has become a really um, special, different, differentiated and, and important platform for change. I want to make that link between venture capital and uh, and creativity in a moment, uh, but I want a, a couple of more questions about uh, the creativity side of it. You are also involved in movies. Uh, Can you forgive me? Was one of them. I just saw it the other day. I enjoyed it very much. What is that like to go into the the movie theater and see a movie that you had some hand in? Oh, well, listen. I would be fibbing if I said that that it didn't feel particularly cool <laughs> to be in that position. Um, you know, as, as a as a person who's always grown up not even understanding how this stuff you know happened, let alone how it got made, um, to be in that moment when we when we went to market with Kenya, forgive me, which was such an incredibly special project and a project that was actually um, Archer Gray's first project. It was the project that that my um, producing partner and Carrie and I met on. Particularly clever, don't you think? Caustic wit. <laughs> this is quite something. These are wonderful. I thought so too. Name your price. Um, and so it was a long, long 10-year journey of getting that project made. And so it felt all the things um, that it should have felt uh, when we walked in and, and, and then to see it have such um, the success and the um, appreciation that it had was extraordinary. Um, everything about that project, the the team we got to work with, the creative team that we worked with, the distributor, uh, it just it was um, it was a real joy uh, and 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 a special project. I think um, you know you, you probably wait a lifetime as a producer to have something like that come along, um, and I'm really thrilled that that we could have been part of that journey. I had been talking with Human Rodfar recently about movies, which he likes very much, and he was 
talking about, you know, someday I think I'd like to get involved in movies. And I pointed out to him that a number of Silicon Valley people, including Elon Musk, had gotten involved in movies. What advice would you give him uh, if he said, you know, I'd like to I'd like to try my hand at this. What, what's what's the entry point and, and what what have you learned or what advice would you give? You know, it's interesting because I, I think the well, the first advice I'd give anybody who is entering a new area of, of that is not sort of core to their expertise is to find the right partner and 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 to trust that you can learn from a team of experts and that you don't have to reinvent the wheel on everything. Um, and that they're, you know, with the right partnership, you can bring your own special sauce to the conversation and to the project without having to, um, uh, you just reinvent the wheel, right? There's a lot of people that have been working really hard in this space for many, many decades. And, and there are a lot of great people out there to work with. And, and I think if you can subjugate your ego to a degree that it doesn't have to be yours at all times, um, that that's probably a good way to enter it. It's, it's, it can be a tricky business to enter um, on your own. Um, I don't recommend, uh, I mean, look, there are lots of ways to go about it. Um, I think particularly for those of us who have the the privilege of being able to financier, you know, act as a financier on certain projects, um, you can use that certainly as an entry point. Um, but I think you have to be very careful to make sure, again, that you're working with the right people um, and, and that you're doing it for the right reasons. Um, I remember one of our early days, um, we were working with some investors on a project and um, we raised capital outside, which I don't tend to do much anymore um, on the financing side. And uh, the investor came back to us after, I don't know, six months or so. We sent them a check because we made money off of what they invested in, which is what we said we would do. And they were really quite shocked and said, you know, I don't understand how... How, where does this money come from? And I said, I, I suppose that was your charitable investment in the arts, but, but, you know, we, we pitched you an idea and that idea made money and that's your return on your investment. But it was a novel concept to him, yeah. uh, uh, which can be dangerous. They call it the in- entertainment industry for a reason. It's supposed to make money. But what do they say? Yeah. They say the best way to make money, uh, no, the, what's the best way to become a millionaire, uh, is to start off as a billionaire and invest in film and wine, right? Like if you do that, then you can, you can quickly become the millionaire that you always wanted to be. Um, but I, but I think that, that look, I don't, it's not, it depends on what level you want to come in to it at, right? I mean, if it's just something you want to be a participant in, you want to, you know, learn, um, find somebody that you can attach your your financial capital to and, and let them do their job, right? And that's a big part of it. Um, if you, you know, I think, I, I would love to say that I got lucky. I think one of the things that has always been part of my ability to do what I need to do in life is that I'm a really good judge of character generally. And and when I meet people, um, I can tell pretty quickly about whether or not they're going to be a long-term part of my life. Um, and I think it's made me good, probably quite good as an investor, because if you are backing most of your time, whether it's in the entertainment industry or um, in the venture capital world, if your, your goal is to find good people and to back them, um, then that's, you know, that's like a hundred percent of my job. Right. And, and I think it's, it's a good reason why when people ask me, well, how is it that you could possibly live in both venture capital and, and, you know, independent filmmaking at the same time? And I don't see them as that different for me personally, right? Because my job is to give the resource, to find the people that have the good ideas and to provide them with the resource, the structure, the access, the governance, and the connectivity 
to allow those ideas to grow and to bloom and to blossom and at any point come in and provide the next level of support. If I have to micromanage and do all of the things to build company A, B, and C, it's not going to work. If I had to do the, micromanage and do all the things to, to create project A, B, and C, it's not going to work, right? You need to give you need to have a really good sense of who the people are to back and then let them do their job. Um, and to me, that's why the, the two feel so aligned. Um, and now, by the way, I don't know that that's true of everybody who's a venture capitalist. I think there are a lot of venture capitalists out there who do things very differently than we do at Anthemis. Um, we don't have a tendency to just, you know, throw money at a problem and then walk away and hope for the best. Um, and I think a lot of people currently in the market are, are doing a lot of that. Um, we, do believe um, in building resiliency in in organizations, in projects, and making sure that the team um, is surrounded with more than just capital, but intellectual and human capital, um, not just financial capital, to, to be able to actually allow things to properly grow and give them a life. And, and we do the same at Archer Gray. So um, I guess, you know, short answer to what my advice would be is, is um, you know, be honest with yourself about what you want to why you want to go into the entertainment industry, and then make sure you're working with people that you trust, respect, um, and genuinely like, um, which has been my journey so far. There is an urge to create that some people have. I think many entrepreneurs do. It's almost by definition they have an urge to create. But also in the arts, whether it's uh, television or, or podcasting or film or musical theater, there's just you have to create things because something in your brain says, I need to create these things and put them out there in the world. Yeah. You know, in the game of content, which quite often today, given all of the opportunities for distribution, it can be a game in the game of content. I think there are two types of creators. There are those who literally need to create a certain quantity of a certain number of projects that will resonate with a certain population for a certain period of time. <laughs> and then there are those of us who earnestly want to focus on quality and create things that have a shelf life um, well beyond their kind of distribution sell-by drop date uh, and who really believe that as the consumption patterns of the human race change that we want to be on the side of creating things to consume that are worthy, right? Um, you know, we didn't build our Gray with an intent to be the purveyors of, you know, cats getting their bellies rubbed videos. Um, on TikTok. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on TikTok, right? There's a market for that. Um, but I think that if you're, you know, if, if you're, if you're a content creator that, that, that wants longevity in the industry, that wants to and can move with the um, trends and, and um, whims of, of our populace, you know, it's going to take time and a little bit of effort um, to stay thoughtful. Uh, but but I think it's worth it. And certainly it has been for us at Archer Gray because I think, um, you know, whether it's Can You Forgive Me or Lost Girls or Mr. Holmes or um, Diary of a Teenage Girl or a whole host of sort of some of these projects that may not be household names, um, but resonate. And that's um, a big part of, of what we think our purpose is here. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. 
It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. You touched on it a bit, but there's this obvious question of what are the parallels between creating movies and musicals and and creating companies and and growing companies as a venture capitalist? What are the parallels there? Yeah, I mean, I I would say by definition, being an early stage venture capitalist and an independent producer of content require you to surround yourself with people, founders, writers filmmakers, actors who have really good ideas and who have vision and who have the flexibility to live and work in a little bit of ambiguity, (laughs) but that are willing to partner in a way that allows the kind of collection of the group to create an opportunity for the thing that they have a vision for to grow. And, and that is exactly the same if on the early stage venture capital side as it is in, in, in developing uh, a, a project, um, content project, right? And so, you know, we go into something, listening to pitches, um, letting people talk, uh, reading their, their work, and if there's something there that resonates and it resonates because we think there's a market opportunity for it, um, we understand it, we just like it and we like the people, uh, then we figure out how to surround them with the resources, um, again, human, financial, and intellectual, uh, that's going to make it easy for them to bring this thing to life. Um, and, it, and it feels very similar uh, when I'm backing an early stage company, or it feels as similar when I'm backing an early stage company as, as when I'm meeting with a filmmaker or a writer for the first time talking about a project that they can imagine seeing on screen. You've worked hard as, as people of all genders do these days, being inclusive, giving people opportunity in tech and venture. One of the things you've done is created an all-woman SPAC. That is, the SPAC itself is entirely made of, of women. So you've got a an established company that is run by women in the C-suite that at this point doesn't have anything to do, right? That's what a SPAC is. Yeah, it's 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 an organization of women ready to take over a different company. 
through this special acquisition. Uh, I realize that SPACs can't have specific targets, but are you targeting something that is involved with with gender and, and equality? Or is this just, we're going to build a, a, a C-suite full of women and we're going to create a company out? Yeah, no. So, so by, by definition, the um, special purpose acquisition vehicles um, that are all the rage these days um, are meant to be um, designed by a team of people um, who can raise a small amount of capital to then go out to the market to align with uh, a potential target um, and in that kind of reverse acquisition, that company then gets to, to be a, a public company. Um, and, and so we've been thinking about this at Anthemus for quite some time, whether or not this was a space we wanted to, to, to dip our toe into. And we watched with great interest how the market has evolved over the last year. Um, and I think for me, the, the, the key was when it started to really clearly become so transactional. Um, something that is, I think, arguably been a def- by definition something the SPAC industry has done, right? It's about one transaction. What is the one company I can find and do a transaction? But just because you're only looking for one target doesn't mean that the entire journey has to be transactional. And that really rubbed me the wrong way. It felt to me like there could be a smarter, better way to do this, right? Taking somebody's company public or helping combine with a mature team to bring a company to the public market is about the most important thing a founder or or a, a, a management team is ever going to do on their professional journey. And so why people would reduce it to simply, uh, you know, a transaction with just some random person felt to me not right. <laughs> and so we we sort of did our own digging and, and went to market um, with an idea that isn't significantly different than, than some of the other ideas out there, but it's about the who and the why. That is different. Um, and, and our team, which is all women and our board is all women, um, bring a collective amount of experience across the whole of the financial services world, which is where we're targeting our, our, our SPAC target. Um, but we, what we do differently is that we we are led by impact um, and, a, and a focus on um, ESG and, and doing good and not evil. Um, we're focused on diversity, inclusivity, um, and, and equity in the markets. And so we will look for targets that also believe in and, and understand what that means. Um, and for businesses that that have a, a goal of um, you know helping properly transform the financial system for good and not evil and in doing so create more transparency and more resilience in the financial system generally um and i think the way we'll go about it so that's the who um and and really the why but the way we're going to be different is that we're 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 going to align ourselves um with companies that that truly and authentically um align with our values but that will recognize um an opportunity to get to know us, to get to work with us, um, and and we'll go on a journey together. Um, so that's you know our approach. Um, it's it's our you know I, I think there's huge amount of opportunity in this particular area of the industry. Um, I think you know beyond just the, the the transactional nature, there's a lot of upside in the in the sort of SPAC business of sorts, and there's a lot of talk about that upside and. I think for a team that that looks at this as a, a way to financially engineer some level of um, positive serendipity in the markets, um, it gives us a really good position to to negotiate and a really great position um, to find a partner um, that will really appreciate what we're bringing to the table. You say you're going to look for a company that aligns with your values, but there's a little piece of me that wishes you would buy with the spec, the just the broiest of bro companies, right? And- <laughs> You know what? It's so funny because we've had many conversations about that. 
Look, aligning with our values does not mean you need to be all women, right? Or all people of color. But it means you have to be able to prove to us that you actually care about this stuff. And even if you're earnestly putting your hand up and saying, I care so much about this, but I can't seem to do it. I don't know how to diversify my board. I don't know how to hire inclusive. I, that's okay. We've got resources to be able to help you with that. Uh, but yeah, the broiest of all bro companies, uh, I don't know that that's going to be our uh, our particular target. And in walk 10 women who are now in charge of the entire thing. <laughs> Maybe you could make that into a movie. Well, it's, one, yeah, it's one way. It's one way to. It's one way to fix, right? Yeah, just to, to solve it. Exactly. Sell me. I asked you to sell me on uh, musical theater. Uh, sell me on fintech. Your your investments are are fintech. Uh, why is fintech exciting? <laughs> So my partner, Sean, and I started um, working together, uh, gosh, it must have been back to like 2007, 2008 now. Um, If you can remember that time in the markets, um, we had a a very early view that what the financial services world was on the verge of was at the hands of sort of, you know, the digital, (laughs) digital world that we were, we were living in at that moment. It was right when the iPhone was, was launched. Um, was was this sort of wonderful monumental catalyst that would forever change the way we did business in financial services. But moreover, that if we got it right as an industry um, and as a as a as a world, we might be able to use technology to transform the entire financial system in a way that created more resiliency, more fairness, more access, and would have an net positive impact on really the entire economy. And it was a pretty lofty thesis uh, back in 2008. Um, not a lot of folks wanted to hear about it. As you can imagine, I think the first day we rose to capital, it was the Monday after Lehman collapsed. We went out to try to raise capital to traditional financial services firms, and it didn't go very well. Um, but the good news was it, it gave Sean and I the opportunity to decide we were going to back ourselves. Um, and so the business that we went off to build, which eventually became Anthemus, really was built on a wing and a prayer um, to suggest that we had an early view that technology would have a massive impact on the way people interact and behaved and organized around money. Um, And sort of off we went kind of doing our thing and making early bets in places um, that now are becoming relevant. Um, You know, the the betterments of the world, the happy monies of the world, the currency clouds and and the like. And, and um, I think we, we shied away from the definition of FinTech um, because we didn't believe this was going to be the technical version, you know, the technological version of financial services, but instead that, technology would enable a full overhaul of financial services. And we were really early, right? We talked about it as embedded finance. Um, I think a lot of folks now are looking at it as embedded finance, but this idea that if you understood how markets worked, how markets were regulated, how the structure worked, you could in essence have an impact on virtually every industry that relied on that, right? And so what company doesn't rely in some way, shape, or form on a payments infrastructure, a risk management insurance infrastructure, a finance and lending infrastructure? And so we could see the fin opportunity in any company. Um, and and this sort of, you know, massive view on kind of what became fintech and what will become fintech, um, which we believe is pretty much everything, um, it was really a phenomenon that kind of in earnest, um, I think, started to pick up a lot of speed in like 2015. Um, I think 
the pandemic um, and the events of 2020 and beyond uh, really secured uh, our entire world's appreciation for what needed to change in our financial system. Um, And lots of things started to fall apart. Lots of things started to creak. Um, and lots of things started to emerge. Uh, and, and I think that for us um, as early influencers in this space, um, and I say influence with a, with a lot of um, <laughs> pause because, you know, I would say from 2008 to 2015, 16, we wouldn't have been considered influencers as much. We would have been considered the sort of wackadoos that were wandering around with spreadsheets and various other um, pieces of data to suggest the sky was falling and no one was paying any attention to us. But now, um, not only are they paying attention, um, I think they're they're listening. And, and I think the thing that makes me so excited about the work we're doing at Anthemis is that we have a responsibility um, with our influence uh, to continue to really force authentic change. Um, because whatever, you know, we know what happens when something becomes popular or becomes trendy, um, it starts to to, to attract a lot of inauthenticity. Um, and for us at Anthemis um, and, and our ecosystem at large, um, our goal is to hold people accountable um, for real change. And, and that only happens if, um, uh, you, you know, you, you, you ask the tough questions, um, you force the tough answers, uh, and, and you really do require a level of authenticity that I'm not sure the market's always ready for. Give me an, an example of real change, something that you would like to see in the financial industry. Oh, oh, gosh. I mean, look, on the, on the kind of you know, micro level, 2020 was a massive year for venture capital. 2021 is poised to be even better. Yet, still less than 2% of the total amount of money in the VC community, despite everything we've been talking about since Me Too, despite everything we've been talking about since COVID, despite everything we've been talking about in the world, is going to women, um, and even a smaller percentage are going to people of color. Um, so that, to me, is uh, it's it's just the saddest. <laughs> stat, um, you know, and, and every time I kind of quote it, you know, a lot of people are like, yeah, 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 everybody knows this is the case, but it, it just, it has to change. And I, and I think that people are, you know, appreciating the opportunity now to lean into that and say, you know, some of the big guys saying, oh, we're going to put $10 million against people of color, or we're going to put $5 million against women. But the reality is it's billions and trillions that are moving this market, right? And so I think we need to call for the LPs um, and, and the limited partners that back all these funds. What are you truly doing at the institutional level to guarantee that your money is getting in the hands of people that will deploy it in a way that moves the needle? Right. I mean, we're we're for argument's sake, we are sitting on over a billion dollars of assets under influence at Anthemus. And we have managed to, without any rules requiring us to do so, put that money in the hands of 40 percent of our portfolio are either women or people of color. That is in an industry that we, we whatever statistic where globally that you want to cut it. People, you know, what excuses have you heard about financials? Oh, well, there just aren't that many women there. or There just aren't that many black people in that industry. Or we can't find any good people. Or there's a pipeline problem. And all the excuses aside, we just put our head down and did the work. And we found 40% of our population fit the, ca- the criteria, right? So I just, I'm tired of the excuses. I'm tired of the finger pointing. And I'm tired of the inauthenticity. I think we have to hold each other accountable, put real money where our mouth is. So that's, you know, certainly one way. One of the things you were very early at, in addition to fintech, was the you, you're not in Silicon Valley. 
you're not on Sand Hill Road. The name of this podcast is Sand Hill Road, but it's meant as a metonym, right? I mean, like Hollywood or Wall Street. It's not specific. But but you have prided yourself on literally not being a Sand Hill Road address. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the greatest positive trends that has come out of this ridiculously trying time of the last two years um, is that I believe the trend towards distributed workforces and the future of work are here to stay. We started Anthemus um, in 2008 when Sean and I were both living in London. Um, I think on day two of figuring out what we wanted to build together, we felt the need to tell one another that um, he felt the need to tell me he was moving to Geneva and I told him I was moving back to New York. Um, And now we'd come up with this great idea of how to build a company and knowing um, that our first employee was probably going to get hired in London, we thought, you know, can we do this? And we said, why not? Um, You know, we want to invest in companies all over the world. So why do we have to be in one particular location? And so we started a a trend, so to speak, back in 2008 of, of hiring people where we needed people and where they wanted to be. Uh, and letting them, you know, do their jobs and and keeping a really core commitment to the value system um, and and the kind of structure of how we did things at Anthemis, but letting everybody put their own stamp on things, right? And and that's a big part of our commitment to diversity, right? We've always believed that diversity isn't one, it's all. Um, And you can't have an all singing, all dancing diverse team if you require them all to live in the same place. Um, So we quite happily um, encourage people to live where they wanted to, where it made them happy, where they could get their job done. Um, and off we went. Um, and it's never, ever stopped us from being able to deploy capital um, uh, across various different parts of the important markets that we cover, which is 50% in Europe and 50% um, in North America. And it has never stopped us from getting a deal, um, which I think is really important. I mean, in fact, in some cases, there was a certain amount of respect for how much Um, we had to work to try to get to the person um, before COVID, uh, you know, to to make sure they knew that we were serious about it. But since um, I think the market has really opened up to the idea that, 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 you know, it doesn't take a physical space to make things happen. Um, And that if you are authentic in your effort to keep people connected um, and, and, and you align around a sense of, I think having a strong sense of values really helped us at Anthemus because you could, you, you, you know, you signed up for the values and so you could trust that how you interpreted that might be different and might be unique depending on where you were and how you operated, but you didn't, you didn't worry about it because you all knew you were there for the same reason. Um, but I'm super excited about that. I think that's going to continue. That's what my next question was going to be. Do you think the advantage you have of being a diversified, geographically diversified venture firm uh, when traditional venture firms stick to Sand Hill Road, the address, they've discovered during COVID that they can be diversified. Mm-hmm. Uh, will you lose that advantage, or do you think do you think the the guys in the fleece jackets will stay? <laughs> in Palo Alto and Menlo Park. Yeah, it reminds me of, um, I'm dating myself now, but it reminds me of the late 90s when um, we all moved to uh, to business casual on Wall Street and you went from sort of, you know, a bunch of guys with blue suits and white shirts and blue ties to a bunch of guys with tan pants and white shirts and loafers. And, and it was sort of this, okay, but have we really changed anything? We've just, you know, take them out of one uncomfortable suit and put them into another uncomfortable suit and then they're still operating as a collective. I don't worry about it. Um, certainly for, from our position at Anthemis, um, you know, it helps that we've been so far ahead of the market, but that's always the big innovator dilemma, right? Is like, just because you were there first doesn't matter. Um, but I think that, that, that we always say at Anthemus that if you, you know, just because somebody else is now doing the same thing that you had the idea for doing, if you believed your idea was good, 
the first time, it's even better when other people are copying it, right? And so as far as we're concerned, let everybody do it, right? It's it's about, it's not going to change um, uh, the types of companies that they invest in. It's not going to change their requirements for how they're going to deploy capital. That's the hard stuff. Um, but I do think it's going to allow us to put capital in more diverse hands and hopefully pull from talent pools um, that otherwise might have felt like they couldn't participate in this wonderful game of venture capital that we uh, that we all have going here. Amy Noyakis with Anthemis Ventures. Now, it didn't come up in this conversation because I intentionally didn't ask, but Amy used to work at Cantor Fitzgerald. She was a senior managing director in September of 2001 and lost 658 of her co-workers in the attack on the Twin Towers. She then helped that company grow back from that tragedy. Now, Amy and I do speak about that time on my TV show, Press Here. You can find that conversation at PressHereTV.com. Just put Amy in the search box. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni.